Chapter thirty eight of England, Canada, and the Great War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. England, Canada, and the Great War by Louis Georges Desjardins. Chapter thirty eight Necessary Peace Conditions. It can be positively affirmed that, taking no account whatever of the treasonable views of the defeatists, and no more of the disloyal opinions of the pacifists, because they only deserve absolute contempt and reprobation, the peoples called the Allies have been long ago are now and will remain to the last unanimous on the essential peace conditions without which all the sacrifices they have made and are making would be a total irreparable loss it has been proclaimed with the highest authority and universally approved that henceforth peace must be just and durable such it should always have been the principle is no doubt very easily enunciated it is applauded by all and everywhere even by germany and austria the great the insuperable difficulty is to agree upon such conditions as will permanently and to the complete satisfaction of all concerned bless the world with the maintenance of a truly just and durable peace it is better to admit at once that the very moment the question is considered the presently contending belligerents are as far apart as the two poles of the earthly globe it is extremely easy to prove it no one now ignores or at least should fail to realize what kind of peace would be accepted by germany as just and durable to be satisfied with a settlement of peace germany would require the sanction by her opponents of her right to maintain develop and strengthen her militarism so threatening to the universe at the time she was exulting over the great and crushing victory which she was sure to have within her powerful grasp in debating with her vanquished enemies the conditions of peace germany elated as she would certainly have been by her triumph would have positively claimed the annexation of belgium and of all the northern part of france by right of conquest she would not have been less exacting than she was in eighteen seventy when in the face of indignant but powerless europe she stripped france of her two fine and wealthy provinces alsace and lorraine she would have claimed the right to supersede england as mistress of the seas german supremacy replacing the british and henceforth ruling the waves she would have claimed the annexation of russian poland and that of servia to austria she would have claimed the recognition of her imperial paramount power over the balkans which she would have united under the direct sway of her ally and vassal bulgaria victorious over all continental europe and equally over great britain she would most likely have claimed the cession to her of the great british autonomous colonies for the purpose of pouring over to canada australia and south africa her increasingly overflowing population and to better achieve that most coveted result she would have destroyed at once the free institutions they enjoy under the british crown to replace them by her autocratic rule in one of his illogical pamphlets abounding in extravagant views the nationalist leader has denied with scorn that germany had ever intended to acquire canada by force of arms he supported his assertion by the declaration made to the contrary by a german minister but he failed to explain that this German public man said so only when the Berlin government had fully realized that they could not succeed in breaking asunder the mighty British Empire. The Teutonic Declaration was hypocritical, intended to deceive, and to supply our nationalist pacifists with what would seem a plausible argument to cover their sympathies for the gentle cause of the tender-hearted Huns. It is very easy to disclaim any aspiration to possess what one is sure never to get triumphant germany would have bargained very hard to lay her powerful hand on the great indian empire she would have dismembered russia as she has effectively done at least temporarily by the infamous brest litovsk treaty she would have strongly supported austria 
in destroying for ever Italy's legitimate aspirations to round off her national territory by the annexation of that part of Austria's possessions called the Trentino, which is hers by nature. Following the precedent she had laid down in 1870, after her triumph over France, Germany would undoubtedly have exacted from her fallen enemies billions and billions of dollars as indemnities of war and germany with such a peace treaty imposed to her despairing enemies with her sanguinary sword at their throat ready to murder them as she did at brest litovsk would have swayed the world with her universal domination but i hear i must say without being the least frightened the thundering clamour of the nationalist leader crying that germany does not now claim such peace conditions as above enumerated very true and why only because she is no longer able to exact and impose them in 1914, Germany being victorious over all Europe, England included, after a four months overpowering campaign, as she expected, would certainly not have been satisfied with less than the conditions just specified. They were the goal for which she had been strenuously preparing for fifty years, her success in 1870 being the preliminary opening of her conquests. To bring Germany to renounce, temporarily, to her fond hopes of domination, it has required the heroic efforts and the untold sacrifices, in men and money, which Great Britain, her colonial empire, France, Italy, Belgium, Japan, betrayed Russia, and last but not least, the United States, have made during more than the last four years, and which they are pledged to make until a successful issue. The kind of peace as above would have been what can be very properly called Germany's offensive peace. In Germany's opinion, this would have been the just and durable peace dear to her so kind heart. But having failed to carry the tremendous victory for which she had so powerfully prepared, Germany would now likely agree to negotiate what can be as properly called a defensive peace. By defensive peace, I mean Germany negotiating now with her opponents with the determination to repulse, as much as possible, their just claims to prevent them to the utmost limit to reap the legitimate fruits of their admirable endeavours, to thwart the realisation of their noble aspirations to protect the world hereafter against her guilty and barbarous militarism. Germany, I mean of course the Teutonic imperial government, has yet given no sign of a change of mind on the vital points at stake in the consideration of the restoration of peace. If the fortune of arms was once more to favour her armies, her blood stained for colours, she would to-morrow be as mercilessly exacting as she would have been in 1914 had she triumphantly entered Paris inside of two months after her challenge to the civilized world. Germany is surely not a convert to sound Christian principles. She will not repent for her crimes. She does not feel the tortures of remorse at her foul deeds. She would certainly be a relapser in the near future if the Allies, unwisely heeding the clamor of the pacifists, imprudently gratified her actual wish for a peace compromise and before long humanity would be forced to go again, in much aggravated conditions, over the way of the cross she has been threading along for nearly five years, steeped to the knees in the blood of millions of her heroic sons, with a reorganized Germany, this time straining all the Huns' accumulated power to lead civilization to her cavalry. With God's grace that shall not be. Five years of martyrdom have deserved and will receive justice." After having explained what Germany, from her standpoint, considers a just and durable peace, let us see what such a peace means from the Allies' standpoint. Every free man has a right to his own opinion. However, he must never forget that liberty of opinion does not mean, never meant, absence of knowledge, ignorance of the basic principles of political society. I do not hesitate to expound what the real conditions of the coming peace must be 
to make it just and durable. Let the inveterate opponents of political liberty say what they please, it is undeniable that the present war has rapidly developed into a deadly conflict between autocratic power and political freedom. Consequently, a peace patched up to uphold autocracy and destroy free institutions could not be just and durable. Under the dominating circumstances of the present struggle, to bring it to a satisfactory conclusion, peace, to be just and durable, must be restored with all the necessary guarantees that political liberty will hereafter be safe against the foul attempts of military despotism. This sine qua non condition is general in its nature, and equally interests all the contending allied nations. Let us now consider the peace conditions which, though of general importance so far as they are necessary for its permanency, are essential from the particular standpoint of each one of the Allies separately. I shall begin the review by considering the particular case of Great Britain. To be just and durable for the British Empire, the future peace treaty must not be so drafted as to supersede British sea supremacy by that of Germany. The question of what is to be done with the great German-African colonies, conquered by the South African Dominion Army, is next in importance to England's sea supremacy from the British Empire standpoint. Germany, very far from foreseeing what was to happen, deliberately opened that question when she precipitated the present conflict by coercing Austria to crush weak Serbia, herself challenging Russia and France, and thundering at Belgium in violation of her most sacred treaty obligations. Great Britain, as in honour bound, standing by Belgium, was forced to fight with Germany. The great autonomous colonies nobly rallying to her support, the South African Dominion, Boers and British admirably united for the purpose, undertook for her share to conquer the German-African colonies. She has grandly succeeded. If, as we all hope, the Allies are finally victorious, would it be just to relinquish Great Britain's right over the German-African colonies, more especially if the South African Dominion is strongly opposed, as there is no doubt she will be, to their retrocession? And what about Belgium and France? No peace treaty could be called just, nor could be durable, which would not completely restore Belgium's independence which would not oblige Germany to indemnify Belgium for the damages wrought upon her, more especially those which were inflicted to the Belgian weak but heroic nation out of sheer barbarous destruction. To France, the northern part of her presently occupied territory, together with Alsace and Lorraine, must be restored. The Germans are loudly crying that in exacting the restoration to France of the provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, the Allies would be partly dismembering the German Empire. Quite so, and why not? Does the victim of the highwayman lose the right to claim his property from the ruffian who has stolen it by brutal force? In 1870, under the circumstances all know, Prussia imposed upon France the cession of Alsace and Lorraine, rounding off the territory of the new German Empire. France naturally smarted under the cruelty of the condition which she could not help accepting. For many years she cherished the hope that the lost provinces would ultimately return to the parental home but it is well known how time is an efficient cure of many ills. France's yearning for the restoration of Alsace and Lorraine had gradually subsided. The general opinion was spreading that the Alsace-Lorraine matter was more and more becoming a finally settled question. Before the war, no power, European or American, would have countenanced France in any attempt to break peace to run her chance of reconquering Alsace and Lorraine. France knew it perfectly well, and at last bowed to her fate. Who has reopened the closed question of Alsace and Lorraine? Is it not Germany herself? Great Britain, Russia, the United States, and Italy, who would not have supported France in an offensive war with the objective of getting back her lost provinces, 
are now a most determined unit in favour of the restoration of Alsace and Lorraine to France as a result of the defensive war Germany forced her to wage. That would be justice, pure and simple. The peace treaty must do it. Germany, having run the risk of reopening the Alsace-Lorraine acute question, the Allies must close it anew, but this time against the Huns. Germany must also pay for the devastation she has savagely spread in France. I stand firm for a final settlement of the Austro-Italian too-long-pending question by giving to Italy the Trentino territory, to which she has an evident national claim, supported by the best of geographical conditions. Servia's independence must be once more secured, and Poland should be resuscitated. The United States' part in the war is truly a grand, a noble one. They have no particular territorial interest to serve. Their only object is the general public good. They will be the benefactors of humanity in claiming for their allies the above enunciated conditions without which no just and durable peace can be expected nor obtained. It is most important to caution the public against the insidious clamours of our pacifists, trying again to deceive the people by asserting that Germany is ready to negotiate for peace on fair terms. The Huns will acquiesce only to such peace terms as they will be forced to. The Allies are better to be guided in consequence in their unfaltering determination to realise a just and durable peace by a glorious victory. End of chapter 38